This year, I'm going to be doing a series of lectures on uh, medical and healthcare issues after disasters and major accidents. And in the first one, I'm going to talk about reducing harms after radiological, nuclear, and chemical emergencies. Now, uh, these are broadly defined, defined as uh, radiological incidents uh, where you don't have a blast or explosion from a nuclear event, uh, a nuclear incident uh, where there is a blast or, expo or exposure uh, due to nuclear fission, uh, and then chemical, which can be deliberate, so chemical warfare, for example, poisonings, uh, or accidental. Now, I'm, in the chemicals, I'm really going to talk uh, just as about the uh, agents that are used in uh, military uh, uses. Throughout this, the key thing to understand with both radiological and uh, with chemical issues is an old uh, saying from Paracelsus uh, in the 16th century that the dose makes the poison. Very low doses of either radiation uh, or of even quite dangerous chemicals uh, are usually harmless or you recover from them uh, really quite quickly. Uh, high doses, of course, are what cause significant problems. Radiological, uh, nuclear and chemical incidents tend to cause widespread and very understandable concern. They tend to dominate uh, the news agenda. Uh, and they are indeed um, uh, dramatic uh, and uh, are turned quite frequently into dramas, including uh, two very uh, well-regarded uh, uh, ones I've put up here. Um, this talk, however, is going to talk uh, to think much more about the science of these events uh, and also what we can do in health terms to minimise the risk to uh, individuals, to families, uh, after the event. Radiological incidents from civil, mainly from civil uh, and uh, nuclear ins uh, installations, are the um, the are the most common of these. Although even these are very rare. Um, some important uh, large-scale events include uh, the Fukushima and the Chernobyl uh, disasters, which I'll talk about uh, in more detail. But there have also been. Uh, leaks from nuclear uh, inst in, uh, installations uh, in the USA, Three Mile Island, for example, uh, and in the UK in wind scale, mainly uh, very uh, small and with uh, limited health impacts. And there have been several smaller incidents along the way. Now, it's important when thinking about this to recognise that uh, power generation, at least by conventional sources, has always had a risk to health. Uh, and most conventional power generation uh, causes substantial air pollution. And this causes uh, very significant harm. Uh, coal uh, burning uh, for production of power in particular is extremely damaging to human health uh, and through air pollution can cause increases in heart disease, stroke, lung cancer, uh, and uh, many other uh, potential diseases. Uh, and nuclear uh, power needs to be seen uh, in that context. Uh, I have given a talk previously at Gresham College uh, on the risks of air pollution. Uh, and here's a graphical way uh, of really demonstrating this uh, and showing that deaths from uh, air pollution and other accidents uh, are much higher, actually, in terms of numbers, particularly from the most polluting form of coal uh, called lignite. Uh, but coal in general has, uh, and to a lesser extent, oil, burning have very significant potential health impacts due to air pollution. 
Moving on to um, uh, radiological incidents, accidents tend to be either due to uh, the human error or to natural disasters, and there can be some combination of those. Uh, Chernobyl in 1986 is the best known, uh, the best studied, uh, and the largest of these. Uh, the causes for it uh, were complex and a whole series of things essentially lined up. A uh, combination of poor design of the reactor and human error uh, led a test shutdown to lead to an energy surge. And then there was a, an explosion caused by steam uh, and then a secondary explosion which breached uh, the, the core. Um, and then there was a reactor fire, and that led to uh, radioactive material being car carried a long way up because of the heat of the fire into the atmosphere, and then uh, it uh, tracked around uh, over Europe uh, for quite some time. I'm not going to go into the details of this. Those who are interested can look at the IAEA report on this, which is really the definitive uh, version. Fukushima um, uh, in 2011 in Japan uh, was uh, largely caused by a natural uh, disaster. An earthquake uh, led uh, to the uh, reactor shutting down as it was designed to do, but then there was a, a subsequent tsunami wave uh, which damaged uh, the cooling uh, system, and then the reactors overheated and there was a partial meltdown. And then there were subsequent explosions, mainly due to hydrogen buildup. To be clear, this is hydrogen, the gas. This isn't a hydrogen uh, like a hydrogen bomb. This is actually just buildup of hydrogen gas, uh, which uh, exploded and breached the core. Again, the, the, uh, there is an official report of this for those who are interested in the details. Now, after there's been an accident, there are broadly four kinds of effects on health. The first of these... Um, uh, the first two of these are really only going to occur for people who are in the immediate vicinity, generally people who are actually nuclear workers or emergency workers on the site at the time of the emergency. There's physical trauma. Um, if there are explosions, and there were explosions in both those two uh, cases, and then there is acute radiation sickness, uh, which I'll go on to describe uh, in the next few slides. For those not actually on the site, um, there is a risk, uh, but it's massively lower. Uh, and the longer-term uh, effects, which can occur for people who are exposed usually to a radioactive plume downwind, are cancers, but the, rate, the rates of those, as I'll show, are low, in fact. And then psychological effects. And the studies of uh, Chernobyl uh, nuclear disaster survivors showed that these psychological effects were often the most, both the most common and in many ways the most severe. So people worry about it uh, after the event for understandable reasons. To understand the risks um, and how to uh, reduce them significantly after an event, it's important that we have uh, a basic understanding of radiation. So I'm, the next few slides are really going to just run through some key bits of understanding of radiation. There are broadly three types of uh, radioactive material or radioactive exposure uh, which are important after a radiological uh, and indeed a nuclear incident. Uh, alpha particles, um, these, are, are, these can travel just a few centimetres in air uh, and they can be stopped by a variety of relatively small barriers. Then there are beta particles, more important, um, and these can travel tens of centimetres in the air but not huge distances 
Uh, and again, they can be stopped but by slightly larger barriers. And then finally, um, there are gamma rays. These are not particles. These are uh, waveforms. Uh, and they can travel many meters to some kilometers, but not indefinitely. But the further they travel, the more their energy will be attenuated, reduced. Um, so uh, the effects will weaken over distance. And just you know, to reiterate this point, alpha particles are stopped by things as, as limited as paper, and the out, outer, therefore, dead uh, layer of the skin. So really, if it, it's only if it, significant amounts are ingested, they tend to cause uh, any significant harm. Beta particles, uh, again, more important, uh, are stopped by glass, aluminium, and other relatively small uh, barriers, uh, or at least very significantly reduced. And gamma rays can penetrate those, uh, but they are significantly attenuated by uh, walls uh, and brick, made of brick, concrete, or stone. And essentially, the larger the mass between you and the gamma ray source, the lower the amount, the dose of radiation that you're going to get. Repeating my constant refrain through this talk, the dose equals the poison. If you can reduce the, po the dose, then uh, the effects will be much smaller. The human body uh, is remarkable in its ability to handle and to recover from large numbers uh, of uh, assaults on it, and radiation is one of these. Radiation is actually occurring in the background every day. There's radiation in, in uh, almost uh, all uh, environments. Um, some buildings uh, are, have, uh, have higher levels of radiation. Quite a lot of very healthy foods uh, have traces of radiation, tobacco has radiation, um, and so you're being exposed to radiation the whole time. I'll come on in a second to kind of the doses we're talking about. At a higher dose, um, uh, in medicine, we use radiation in two, broadly two ways. Uh, it's used diagnostically using x-rays, and people who have an x-ray, have a CT scan, are exposed to very small amounts of radiation, which really have uh, for practical purposes, uh, with the exception of fetuses um, uh, from, for women who are pregnant, but for practical purposes have uh, no increase in risk uh, under ordinary circumstances if people just have a single x-ray. Uh, and then the, at a much, much higher dose, uh, radiotherapy, which is based on the fact that uh, healthy cells exposed to radiation may be damaged, but they will then recover. Uh, from the radiation dose. So the body can both handle small amounts and recover from uh, larger amounts. Now, I talked about cancer treatment in a, a, a series, uh, a previous series at Gresham College. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but I think it's just useful to understand this background for understanding the uh, wider risk. So in the way in which uh, radiotherapy occurs, uh, a variety of ways of achieving it, but um, the most common thing is to uh, fire external radiation at the body from uh, multiple angles so that there's only, one, only the area with a cancer in it has a very, very high level of radiation. The other areas of the body that the radiation passes through has a much lower level and those cells will recover. So again, this is just a demonstration of the fact that normal cells will recover from radiation uh, in the great majority of cases. And the variety of ways of doing it on the right, I've shown uh, how um, uh, both uh, X-ray type and proton beam therapies can be used for this concentration of X-rays where a uh, cancer is found.
there are quite, there are, the way in which you measure the uh, amount of radiation can get quite confusing. Uh, Gray's, Sieverts, a variety of ways of, of thinking about it. Uh, one way that people have thought about it is the a number of um, bananas you'd need uh, to eat to achieve the same amount of radiation exposure. Because even bananas, very healthy uh, uh, food, like many other foods, have a very small, very small amount of uh, radiation in them. And on the left here, uh, you can see um, uh, the, and essentially the banana equivalent, this is a slightly crude scale, so, but it's just to give a sort of sense of relative scale uh, of um, the amount of radiation you get. So your normal background dose would be around about 100. A dental x-ray would be lower than that, so it's less than a day's worth. Uh, a, an x-ray of the chest uh, might be somewhere between twice and five times that, so five days' worth of background radiation uh, and by the time you get up to CT, slightly higher than that, but really a, a very substantially greater amount of radiation for radiotherapy um, and a massively higher dose uh, if you're to have a fatal dose. These are the kinds of uh, levels of radiation which actually are going to cause really substantial harm. So low doses we handle uh, as bodies uh, really well. So the first of the major causes of uh, illness after exposure to radiation um, is acute radiation sickness. This is by far the most severe end of the spectrum, uh, and a relatively or very small number of people uh, will be affected. But for them, uh, this uh, is a serious uh, risk to their health. For this, And these, as I say, will be people really just on the site of an emergency, generally. There are four uh, sub-syndromes, a variety of ways of describing this, uh, but they, they're all uh, caused by the fact that radiation has its biggest impact on the cells in the body that are rapidly dividing. Uh, and the forearc, the hemopoietic system, this is the thing that makes blood, uh, and makes red cells, makes platelets, which stop bleeding, uh, and importantly, it makes white cells, which fight infection. And if the bone marrow is temporarily, essentially switched off because of the damage from the radiation as it recovers, uh, you can have a period of time when people have anemia, uh, uh, but more importantly, uh, they are very susceptible to infection until their white cells recover. Then there's uh, the gastrointestinal system, the gut. Gut rapidly uh, turns over uh, with diarrhea and a variety of other uh, gut problems. Uh, the cutaneous system, the skin system, including uh, hair, uh, and then the neurovascular system, which really only tends to be affected by very high doses indeed. All of these uh, are, in the great majority of people, temporary. So they will recover, but um, for a period, they will be at significant risk because of uh, radiation sickness. And for those who get radiation sickness, there are four stages, and not everybody uh, goes through all of them. The first of them which happens commonly, including people who actually go on to have no further issues, is a prodrome. People feel really very rapidly they have vomiting or a nausea, headaches, loss of appetite, diarrhea, fever. And this is a short-term effect, uh, and it then uh, improves. Then there's a period for days uh, to weeks, and the, shorter the, uh, those are the bigger the dose, the shorter the period, where people make an apparent recovery. They, in more severe cases, they may have some hair loss, but otherwise they appear to get better. And then weeks to months later, uh, there is a period of illness, manifest illness, where people have diarrhea, infection, 
anemia. Um, uh, and during this period, they are very vulnerable, particularly, as I say, to uh, infections. And then, except in people who have the heaviest dose, there will be recovery. And people will recover uh, largely or completely from their radiation dose. To give some sense of scale, remembering that uh, Chernobyl was the uh, largest um, civil nuclear, uh, sorry, civil radiological event, um, uh, that, that had probably about 134 acute radiation sickness in total uh, and around 28 deaths. Uh, Fukushima uh, had no um, deaths from acute radiation sickness recorded at all. So these are rare, but these are obviously serious when they occur. And what will happen depends on the dose. So uh, at a relatively low dose, um, this is uh, uh, measured in greys on this particular thing. These, these, da these data are, again, open source. Uh, people will have the prodrome. They may have the nausea, vomiting, and anemia. And they may uh, subsequently have a slightly increased risk of infection and of fever. But the recovery will be relatively quick. Uh, there isn't severe disease, and there will be no mortality uh, in people who've had this kind of very low dose uh, overall. At a high uh, dose, but not a completely lethal dose for most people, here's um, a, uh, a someone who's been exposed to uh, three to five greys, uh, which is a much higher dose. They'll have a much wider range of symptoms, uh, much longer and more severe uh, fever, infection, diarrhea, uh, weakness, uh, and the mortality rate at this kind of dose would be somewhere between 5 and 50%. So still the majority of people will recover, but uh, they will be very sick for um, a period of time and need uh, very careful medical care. And then at very, very high doses, uh, the effect will be lethal, but that's exceptionally high. So that's acute radiation sickness, very small numbers, very uh, heavy uh, exposure to radiation. The other thing that people uh, understandably worry about is cancer. And uh, this has been studied uh, at, both in uh, Chernobyl and in um, uh, Fukushima. Uh, and I think it's worth looking at some of the data, and I've chosen Fukushima to do this. It was, there was a really heavy study by the World Health Organization, WHO, uh, looking at this. The first thing I want you to look at is the map uh, on, on Fukushima, uh, uh, which is on, on the right of this slide. And uh, in red, that red streak is where people had a high dose, uh, potentially, exposure from the plume of radioactive material that moved downwind uh, away from the, radio the, uh, the, the, the reactor uh, after it had been breached. Uh, in blue, um, a much lower uh, exposure, uh, and other areas outside that, really no exposure for practical purposes at all. And I wanted to show, uh, really, uh, two things um, uh, with the graph uh, on the left of this slide. The first is that um, the uh, risk of a subsequent cancer is very much dependent on the dose. So in the risk of people in absolutely the middle of the red area, the highest exposure in the plume nearest to the reactor, have, unsurprisingly, a higher risk of cancers than those, uh, than they're the ones on uh, location one, uh, than those in location eight, which is much further away from the plume, but still affected. 
The second thing to note is that um, this varies by age. So uh, if children under one are exposed, they have a higher risk, not a massively higher risk, but a slightly higher risk than those uh, who are older children uh, and higher, again, than young adults. So age does have some implication here. But, and I think this is where it's important not to get things, uh, see things in, a, in the wrong perspective, if you compare the risks as a result of this exposure to someone's lifetime risks overall, the actual proportionate increase caused by having been exposed to this nuclear, this radiological accident from a nuclear power station uh, are actually extremely small. And the uh, very, the dark blue or the blue bars at the top of these uh, are the actual risk and then the gray bar below it is the uh, lifetime risk not caused by uh, the radiological events but by everything else that someone goes through in life. And as you can see, uh, really even in this uh, very uh, uh, this relatively heavy exposure compared to others, the actual increase in risk over a, a lifetime uh, is small, uh, still larger in someone who's a child than uh, someone who's an adult, but still uh, in both of those uh, small. And I've, uh, what we have shown on this is uh, solid cancers uh, on the left and leukemia, uh, bone, uh, bone marrow cancer uh, on the right. There is, however, one particular cancer which is uh, made more likely by exposure uh, and where the effects are attributable. It's a very rare cancer. It's made more common by uh, radiological exposure, uh, but it's still very rare in absolute terms, and that is thyroid cancer. And again, uh, worth looking at uh, really two, two things. Firstly, on the right, this is really to demonstrate, again, this effect that um, uh, small children are at a higher risk than uh, adults, and secondly, um, that uh, women are at higher risk of thyroid cancer than men, and that is also true after radiological exposure. And you can see this in terms of the lifetime attributable risk, again, uh, on, the, uh, on the bit of the graph on the left. What you can see in the grey bars is what people would have had had they not had the exposure. The blue bars are the additional um, risk as a result of exposure. And this is in area one. This is the people who are most exposed immediately downwind of the, um, uh, the, the reactor. But the numbers involved are very small. Um, and uh, it's important to stress that uh, thyroid cancer, the great majority of people will not get thyroid cancer. And of those who do, uh, the great majority will, in fact, survive. So looking at um, uh, the Chernobyl risk, uh, after 30 years, so this is after a long follow-up, the total number of um, people who had thyroid cancer at all, this is all causes, this isn't just caused by radiation, in the three most affected cancer, uh, countries was about 11,000. Um, but only a fraction of those will have been due to radioactive iodine and most uh, would make a full recovery, even of those who've got cancer. Very modest increases in other cancers uh, for those who were exposed um, uh, to long-term radiation. And there was probably a small, but not, not, not substantial, but, but small, but real risk of increased of cardiovascular risk 
uh, and also of cataracts uh, of the eyes. All of these are dose-related. So if you can reduce the dose, you substantially reduce the risk that any of these will occur. But to make a point I made earlier, by far the most common uh, imp implications were mental health issues, where people were very worried that they or their families uh, will, would be suffering as a result of being, having exposed to radiation. And it was actually this concern that was probably the bigger uh, risk than the actual risk of cancers and other physical harms. So since the body can deal with very small amounts of radiation and recover well from uh, low to moderate ones, the key thing is to reduce the dose of radiation. And the, after an event, there are three ways to minimise exposure. Uh, reduce time, so the amount of time you're uh, subject to radiation. Uh, increase distance from you and the source. And shielding, putting a barrier between you and the radiation source. So if you assume a fixed concentration, the risk is broadly proportional to the time exposed. So the less time you have exposed, uh, the better, and uh, nuclear uh, workers are trained very heavily in this. Distance is very important. So at a distance of a few kilometers from a radiation source, there will be no alpha or beta radiation, and gamma will be minimal. So keeping away from sources either the, um, uh, the actual accident or a plume, uh, if you can put distance between you and them, uh, the impact will be extremely small. The plume of radioactive material, if there is one, uh, as it moves, is likely to get larger physically, but also to dilute. So a larger number of people may be exposed to a much lower amount of radiation. But uh, it is important to track the plume and to make sure people who are likely to be under it are aware of what to do to minimize their risk. And finally, uh, shielding uh, is a very effective way of preventing alpha and beta radiation, putting you a barrier between yourself and the radiation source, and significantly effective, but not completely effective, against gamma uh, radiation. I'll go on to that in slightly more detail. But to summarize, to reduce your radiation exposure, limiting time, increasing distance, and using shielding will significantly reduce the dose, and the dose is what predicts how bad the possible outcomes will be, both short-term and long-term. If there is a nuclear event, um, uh, and this is just one of, uh, this is just an example uh, of um, plume modeling, uh, there will be, um, expert groups will uh, be providing a maps of and predictions of where this is going to go based on weather conditions. And this will depend on several factors, how far up it goes uh, into the atmosphere. So much uh, higher uh, temperatures, will much, uh, any kind of explosion may uh, loft things much higher than um, if that doesn't happen. And the wind will go in different directions depending on uh, which uh, height it is. The wind speed and direction is obviously important. Uh, things like precipitation, rain and other events, uh, will um, have big implications for how quickly it's washed out. And also, local factors on the ground will have uh, big implications for exactly how much concentration occurs. So the Met Office and others will model, it, model any kind of plume and be able to predict uh, in which direction it's likely to go next. So apart from the people immediately on the site, 
the plume is the major risk, and this is what will affect um, uh, anybody who is affected who isn't immediately on the site. And I think that the key thing here is to understand uh, the, the vice and the reasons for it after an event. And the first bit of advice is get inside and then stay inside, don't uh, venture out. Uh, and finally, uh, stay tuned to try and get advice as to when it is going to be safe for you and your family to move. The reason for this advice is really uh, flows from what I said earlier on uh, about the way in which radiation works. Houses, offices, and schools built usually of uh, brick or concrete or stone um, provide very good short-term protection. We're talking one to three days against alpha and beta radiation. They may land on the, uh, on the walls, they may land on the roof, but they will uh, not be able, the radiation will not penetrate them. Uh, and from other elements of radioactive dust, but it is important that you then close windows, block off any holes, turn off the air conditioning so that air is not coming in uh, from the outside. They will also substantially reduce gamma radiation, um, but you want to get as many walls uh, between you and the outside as possible because the greater the mass between you and the gamma the radiation, the smaller the dose you are going to uh, actually receive due to attenuation. Cars, on the other hand, are much less safe. And this is one of the reasons that uh, the advice is not to immediately jump in your car, uh, pick up um, the family, and uh, drive. Firstly, other people may well have had the same idea, so you may be stuck uh, on the roads. And secondly, uh, you will have much less protection in a car than if you are in a building. But if there is time to ev evacuate, uh, do so, but with advice. And the reason for that is plumes may not be where you think they are. You can't see them. Uh, it's the mapping of them that will tell you where the risk is, where it's going to be uh, in the next uh, few hours and days. So just to uh, give some idea of this, um, uh, any house will provide protection, but again, the more walls there are between you and the outside, um, the better. Uh, and this is just a kind of graphic to give you some idea about where you want to go. You want to go essentially into the center of the building, uh, down, uh, down into a cellar if there is one, because that puts more uh, distance between you and the uh, roof. Um, a typical brick house will reduce this down by about to about 0.015, so essentially 85% reduction. Uh, and a multi-story building will reduce it even further because there's more concrete uh, and brick involved. The next thing you can do and should do is decontamination if you've been outside during a radiological uh, or indeed nuclear emergency. And um, for radiation, I'll come on to chemicals, which are slightly different, but for radiation, important to understand that, a, that minutes don't matter here the key thing is that you do this uh, effectively. So if you've been outside, remove your outer clothes. And ideally, if you're in the right kind of environment where you can do this, remove all your clothes, put, in, put on clothes that are, uh, are um, clean and uh, haven't been contaminated. This substantially reduces the risk. So any kind of beta emitters or alpha emitters on those clothes are then off you. They're not going to penetrate. Uh, they're going to be um, some distance away from you. Double bag them, put them uh, some way away from where you are. Then uh, shower uh, using soap, um, uh, lots of water, 
Uh, but don't put in conditioner because that can lead to uh, things sticking to your hair. So just soap and water, mild soap and water, uh, will just get rid of further amounts. And this will generally remove more than 90% of the radiation on you. So this is an effective way, again, of reducing the dose. Remembering the dose makes the poison. Then it's worth thinking about what other things you can do, particularly the, of, the, from the risks of uh, radioactive material that's been ingested. And the Chernobyl accident really provides the model uh, for which isotopes are important. So quite a lot of radioactive isotopes um, occurred actually on the site of the, uh, the reactor, but um, uh, only really two became important uh, in, for medical, in medical terms uh, outside. Uh, radioactive iodine and uh, radioactive cesium. And they provided more than 90% of the radioactive material in the plume. So they were really uh, the big risks. And they have slightly different um, uh, properties. Radioactive iodine has a uh, relatively short half-life, just over a week. So that means that the dose is going to be dropping very rapidly over the first two or three weeks. Uh, and will decay away in months to a point where, for practical purposes, it's not uh, adding much risk. Cesium, on the other hand, has a much longer half-life, so this will, this will survive in the environment for uh, a much longer period of time. But they do actually have different medical uh, properties. Um, iodine, uh, generally iodine-131, is a product of uranium and plutonium, uh, both of which may be used, or either or both of which may be in the reactor. It's also used uh, in medical treatment. Uh, most of its radiation is beta, so it's quite short uh, range, and therefore the risk is if you ingest it uh, in some way. There's a small amount, much smaller amount of gamma radiation. The reason it's important, uh, however, is that it's taken up by and concentrated by the thyroid gland, and that is because the main uh, thyroid hormone is based on iodine. So the thyroid gland uh, seizes iodine that's passing and concentrates it in the gland uh, to make uh, thyroid uh, hormones. And the problem with this, therefore, is you get a very heavy concentration of the iodine, which might, at the very low levels in the rest of the body, really has minimal effects. And because it's highly concentrated in this area, it is uh, therefore, and producing beta emissions, it therefore can cause local damage to the thyroid uh, gland. And this can do uh, two things. Uh, it can damage the thyroid gland so it doesn't continue to produce its uh, hormone. Now, that is a nuisance, but it is an entirely... Uh, manageable process. Lots of people have to have thyroid uh, replacement therapy. Uh, it really then means people have to have thyroid replacement therapy subsequently uh, with uh, just oral, oral drugs. Uh, but there is this increased risk, which I talked about earlier, of thyroid cancer. Important to note that radioactive uh, iodine of different forms uh, is used also for treatment, sometimes for an overactive thyroid uh, and sometimes, in fact, for treatment of cancers themselves. Uh, so it is given, but obviously that's in an environment where you're trying to treat a disease. So this issue about radioactive iodine in the thyroid uh, means that it is uh, worth, uh, if you are, are, know you're about to be exposed, taking iodine to reduce the risk of thyroid cancer. And the reason this works is by flooding the body with iodine just before the event, uh, the uh, thyroid has then taken up a huge amount of iodine, 
uh, and um, is uh, much less likely to grab radioactive iodine uh, as it goes past, reduces the risk of it being concentrated in the thyroid subsequently. So for people exposed to significant risks from inhaling iodine uh, from the plume, uh, the recommendation is to have stable iodine uh, given between 24 hours before and two hours after. If you give it later than that, it actually can do more harm than good. So you definitely want to do it before the event. Uh, and then longer-term risks can occur from uh, milk products uh, and food, uh, but these can be picked up by people detecting the radiation and essentially taking them out of uh, production. So that side of things uh, will be dealt with by um, safety uh, measures on food subsequently. So it's really that initial risk under the radioactive plume. Those who are not under the plume are not at risk from radioactive iodine. Cesium-137 uh, uh, is, as I say, longer-lasting. Um, it's also water-soluble st st and potentially stable, so it can spread through the environment. It is taken up by humans, but it's uh, very rapidly um, excreted in the same way the potassium is excreted. So it's actually quite rare that people will get significant amounts of cesium concentrating in the body, remembering that the body is extremely good at dealing with low levels of radiation and recovering from moderate levels. So uh, the biggest problem from cesium really is the fact that it has a relatively long half-life. Uh, and uh, you can see uh, on this map uh, where cesium was deposited in Europe, uh, and these, this has implications for subsequent agriculture in those areas, potentially, where red is uh, high amounts. It's very unlikely that tap water will be contaminated to a significant degree, so that's not a worry that people should have. They can still drink tap water unless told otherwise. Um, uh, and anything that's indoors, in your house, indeed in a supermarket, before the accident is safe to consume. It won't have been contaminated. The only real risk is vegetables outside when contamination occurred. So if you've got a kind of plot outside, then uh, don't start digging up your, um, uh, your uh, lettuce or whatever it is uh, straight afterwards. Seems an obvious point. Uh, and um, remembering that over 90% of radiation from food is naturally occurring and at very, very low levels, uh, what, what will happen then is there will be a safety assessment of all the different foodstuffs and where there's a risk, it'll be removed from the food chain. So um, the risk really, in, in, from this point of view, is likely to be very small. So that's the, um, uh, the, what to do after a radiological event, and this is uh, the majority of the talk. But I wanted now just to talk about some uh, events which we hope will never happen again, but it is worth understanding a bit about the medicine around these. And the first of these is a nuclear device explosion, a nuclear bomb. Uh, this will cause um, death and destruction and disability via three routes. The first is blast, straight blast. It, it is an explosion, it's a very large explosion, uh, and people will be killed by that explosion. The second is thermal, flash, where people uh, get burns. And the third uh, is radiation. Radiation, of course, is the one that's specific to uh, nuclear devices. The great majority of the death will, in fact, be from uh, blast and the firestorm uh, that goes with it. So um, those two uh, are the, uh, what will, will kill the great majority of people and did so uh, in, uh, in uh, the um, Second World War. Depending on the nuclear device, size and variety of other things, there may be a zone where people survive the blast 
but have a lethal, severe, or moderate amount of radiation sickness. For many nuclear devices, that won't actually happen. The, the blast uh, will essentially kill everyone who's going to be killed uh, anyway, uh, unfortunately. But um, the, some devices, there may be a sort of outer layer where radiation sickness is important. And then the radioactive plume principles are exactly the same as for a civil um, uh, radiological event. Uh, you get indoors and you stay indoors uh, until you're given advice um, to move because it's become safer to do so. One slight difference is that radioactive iodine is much less important in, uh, in plumes provided, uh, which are created this way, and therefore getting stable iodine is of practically much less importance. Now, the physics of this I'm not going to go through, but just to say that... Um, the size of the nuclear device will determine whether there is a zone of people who get acute radiation sickness but who were not killed in the initial um, blast and fire. In general, what this, this, this uh, graph is demonstrating is that um, the, uh, the dark blue line uh, is the radiation injuries at a high enough level to cause very significant harm. And as you can see in small nuclear devices, there may be a group of uh, quite a significant group of people who have uh, radiation injury beyond the blast radius for very large uh, blast, um, very large nuclear devices, uh, essentially everybody would have been killed in the blast and fire, uh, unfortunately. But uh, let us hope that this never occurs again um, uh, in the future. Within this, there's a lot of variation. Um, uh, buildings, terrain, what's hills, variety of build, all, all, all these kind of environments will have implications for both the effects of the blast injury uh, and uh, burns and radiation in due course. Uh, and how high up the, uh, the um, device is when it explodes uh, will also have implications. Uh, but I think probably the details of this are, are, are unnecessary at this point. The point is, uh, unfortunately, with a large event, most people will die in the blast um, So now to move on to uh, chemicals. Uh, and I'm really just going to talk here about chemical warfare agents, but some of the points that I'm making in general are applied to all contamination with dangerous chemicals. At high enough doses, uh, many chemicals and drugs, given quite perfectly appropriately by uh, doctors, uh, can be toxic. And some are indeed occasionally used as poisons, where people deliberately give someone uh, a much higher dose than is safe. Uh, but um, uh, in general, uh, if you keep within the, rec the recommended dose, uh, they will do uh, much more good than harm. A much smaller number of chemicals have been designed deliberately to kill and maim humans. And there are three classes in particular. There are some others, but three in particular have been used, uh, unfortunately, uh, over, over uh, our recent history. The first group are the blistering agents, of which mustard gas is the best known. The second are the choking agents, um, uh, of which chlorine and phosgene uh, are best known. And uh, uh, all of these, unfortunately, were used in the First World War. I'll go through them in a bit more detail. And then the third group are the nerve agents, especially the organophosphates. Start with the blistering agents. Um, there are several of them, but the three probably best known, sulfur mustard, also mustard gas, 
uh, lewisite and nitrogen mustard uh, are the ones that uh, were used. And you can see uh, on the right of this um, some of the studies of uh, these agents uh, on people at different concentrations uh, on the effects on people's skin. Um, sulfur mustard is a gas or an oily liquid. So the actual, it's not just a gas, you actually can have it uh, as li in liquid form and therefore people touch it and get blistering from that. And it causes its damage by uh, skin contact, uh, eye contact, and inhalation. And all of these, it causes severe burns and blisters, eye damage and lung da damage. It's not, uh, often not immediate. It can be delayed by up to 24 hours. It's heavier than air, and this is important if you're having to get out of an environment where this is uh, there, so it sinks to low-lying areas. It's one of the reasons it was used as a military agent, because it sunk down into trenches and foxholes and so on. Uh, and un in normal weather conditions, it lasts about one to two days. It can uh, be slightly longer in cold weather. The key, if someone is exposed to this, is get them out into fresh air and remove all their clothes immediately. So unlike radiation, where speed is much less important, uh, speed really is absolutely essential. You've just got to do it immediately and then go on to do decontamination, which I'll come on to. There are no antidotes to these agents, but the great majority of people will survive them, but it's exceptionally painful for the period uh, over the uh, next few weeks, um, and it may cause some scarring. So extremely unpleasant uh, agents. Subsequently, uh, mustard gas agents, however, were then used um, because of their damage to cells. Um, uh, they were then uh, studied for their effects um, in medicines. And from them, several drugs were, in fact, developed, which are, some of which are still in use. Um, because they cause damage to, to rapidly dividing cells, that's really where they cause the most damage, um, this can lead, uh, it was seen that this led to a drop in white cells, and as a result of that, uh, doctors initially in the States um, uh, started trying to see if this could be used, uh, these drugs could be used to treat uh, cancers of the blood cells. Uh, and the first patient who had this was someone with lymphoma. And the drug significantly improved their lymphoma uh, with repeated doses, uh, but eventually they relapsed. But this was really the start of um, chemotherapy. So chemotherapy actually derives in part from these uh, appalling uh, military agents. Uh, then um, various uh, pharmacologists uh, used those principles and found mechanisms to make them much less toxic to the general individuals. Uh, and this led to a, ser a series of drugs which are still used uh, today in chemotherapy. Uh, probably the most widely used is a drug called chlorambucil, uh, which um, is essentially derived from this by several removes, still used as a chemotherapy agent, uh, and also used for severe immune diseases. So uh, this has gone into medicine from uh, military agent um, over, over many years. The second groups of agents are the choking or pulmonary agents that affect the lungs, uh, of which the best known are chlorine gas and phosgene. Very extensively used in World War I, um, uh, but they're also dual use. They're used a lot in chemical processes. So these are drugs which were known in industry uh, for other reasons. 
Uh, at very high doses, again, a very low dose uh, is entirely manageable. At very high doses, they cause burning sensations of the lungs, eyes, uh, coughing. In very high doses, you get fluid on the lungs, pulmonary edema. And phosgene uh, can additionally cause heart problems. Uh, like with the, um, the mustard uh, group, the blistering group, the key thing is get away and get clothes off as fast as possible. Most people will make a, a full recovery in between 7 and 14 days, but um, extremely unpleasant in the intervening period. Uh, phosgene has a higher mortality rate, but still the majority recovered. But phosgene, in fact, was the chemical agent which killed the most people uh, in World War I. The third big group, um, not uh, used uh, in this way in, in World War I, um, but subsequently developed, are the organophosphates and the carbamates. These are the nerve agents. Um, that's how they're popularly referred. These were originally developed um, uh, by, uh, as uh, and insecticides and pesticides. And we still use them, this class of drugs, in very different doses and different formulations, for that purpose. Sheep dips, for example, would have organophosphates to help kill ticks. Uh, if uh, you treat uh, yourself or children uh, with malathion, it's an incredibly low organophosphate used to treat head lice and scabies. It's a very effective drug, doesn't uh, have uh, good, uh, any problems uh, of, of a significant sort uh, with toxicity, um, uh, if used as, uh, as intended. So, it was actually developed for medical and agricultural use. Um, the way they work is via the acetylcholine system and um, a, an, a, an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine uh, called acetylcholinesterase. Um, acetylcholine is used by lots of different species, uh, human but also insects, um, as a neurotransmitter uh, in multiple parts of the body. It's, it's, it's really widely used across um, all, all of uh, biology. In neuromuscular junctions, it causes muscles to contract. It also affects the brain, uh, can affect the, it's used in the brain, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So it's got large numbers of effects. And what normally happens is the uh, acetylcholine is released, it then binds to the receptor, it leads to the action, and then the acetylcholinesterase breaks it down in nanoseconds. So the system turns on and then immediately turns off and there's more acetylcholine is re released. These agents uh, stop the breaking down of the acetylcholine, uh, acetylcholine and because of that, the system is then always on. It's not in the kind of balance, it's always on. And this is what causes uh, the damage. Uh, these agents at high doses, and the doses used to actually damage humans deliberately rather than as a, an insecticide or to treat um, conditions, can be delivered in a variety of ways. They can be delivered as gases, of uh, which the most well-known is sarin, and they can also be delivered as liquids. In military terms, this is an area denial agent, uh, uh, of which the best known uh, was uh, VX, but in the UK, unfortunately, we've also... Uh, had, uh, due to deliberate uh, use, uh, Novichok, uh, which is another of these organophosphate um, agents. The symptoms of organophosphate poisoning are twitching, shortness of breath, diarrhea, involuntary tearing, uh, pinpoint pupils in a moderate dose, and in higher doses uh, still, convulsions, 
coma, cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, and death. So as with all of these things, dose makes the poison. Very, very small exposure will be dealt with by the body relatively uh, quickly uh, if you've got uh, very high doses, uh, potentially lethal amounts. There are treatments for this, um, of which the most uh, widely used is atropine, uh, which blocks some of the receptors, so it reduces some of the effect of this, so it, it blocks some of the acetylcholine receptors that this acetylcholine is, uh, is going to affect. Um, but uh, the treatment is only moderately effective, um, and you have to wait until uh, the system has recovered, which can take a very long time if people do make a full recovery. For all of these chemical agents, and the same is true if you're talking about industrial chemicals that people are exposed to, uh, decontamination is absolutely critical. And there is a real need for speed in decontamination with chemical agents in contrast to uh, the um, uh, radiological in uh, incidents where uh, its speed is less essential. You need to remove all clothes possible. Uh, don't pull things over the head. If you've got scissors, just cut them off to avoid them being smeared over the face, the eyes, and so on. Then they should be double-backed and put a long way away from anywhere where uh, an, a, anyone is. <laughs> if it's an oily substance, then dab it off quickly initially. Uh, this is to avoid it being spread more widely. So um, using kitchen towels, for example, would be uh, a good way of doing that. And then go on to wash, shower, ideally, with copious amounts of water uh, and potentially mild soap. That basically is decontamination. Uh, and then remove contact lenses, which could, be, uh, could have concentrated some of the chemicals inside them. So um, removing all clothes, removing excess oily material, and then uh, lots and lots of water and mild soap really is the way to reduce the dose as much as possible. So this is, that's really an overview uh, of the major radiological, nuclear, and chemical, deliberate chemical incidents and accidents. Throughout all of this, the point I was trying to emphasize is the dose makes the poison. And therefore, since the body is so good at dealing with very low doses, if you can minimize the amount of dose, the chance of harm are substantially reduced and may well, for practical purposes, for long-term harm, be close to zero. Whereas if there's very high dose, then the risks obviously are much greater. So reducing the dose is the key. Expect, except for those in the immediate vicinity of radiological, nuclear, or chemical incidents, it's possible uh, very substantially to reduce the, the dose by taking relatively simple measures. Generally, at very low doses, the health effects are small and uh, temporary. Uh, and even for um, moderate doses, the body is remarkably good at recovering from things. It's, it's got extraordinary regenerative uh, capacity. For radiation, uh, get inside, stay inside, and decontaminate if you are outside in the, uh, under the plume. And for chemicals, rapid removal of contaminated clothes, further decontamination with copious showering, and then seeking medical care uh, are the best ways to minimize the risk this is going to cause any long-term uh, medical harm. Thank you very much.